Welcome to the Metaphysical Martini Show, where wit and wisdom come together to bridge the gap between the spirit realm and the physical world. With Ani Avedisian, the Mad Shaman, a production of CosmicReality.com. Hello, everyone. I'm Ani, Mad Shaman Avedisian. Welcome to Metaphysical Martini. Three part spirit, one part rational mind. Add two drops of optimism, give it all a good hard shake and pour, dress it with the olives of grace and empathy. Sit back, sit slowly, and contemplate the wonder of cosmic co-creation. And a hearty hello to everyone out there. Hello, hello, hello. Thanks for joining me for yet another round of cocktails on this week's Metaphysical Martini. The show that tries to sort out what's true, what's woo, and what gets flushed down the loo. In today's, your country is attempting to surrender your sovereignty to medical tyranny via the World Health Organization and UN, both agents of the Luciferian New World Order, all pre-planned, by the way, and made to order. And while you were distracted, the truth was redacted. Oh, look, watch out. It's the primate pox, to which I say, what a poop-filled crock. I bet you don't know what's happening in Gitmo. Would it burst your bubble to know that the bought and paid for political players have been arrested and are using doubles? Strangely dysfunctional, highly combustible, angry and somewhat constipated little world. As always, my darlings, we try to do this with as much dignity and decorum as can possibly be mustered on any given day. And some days we are successful, most days we are not. And hopefully today is one of those days where we are successful. But first, let me take a moment to say thank you to the lovely people who make distribution of this podcast possible. Mysticalwares.com in Mount Vernon, Washington. Dedicated to exploring both the known and the unknown, then helping provide the products and tools to expand your reach. Mysticalwares has a large and varied inventory and is the perfect spot for people who value illumination over indoctrination and who know the difference between propaganda and ashwagandha. Mysticalwares, Mount Vernon, Washington. If you are experiencing spiritual stasis, head to Mystical Wares in Mount Vernon, because it is a metaphysical oasis. And they are actually lovely people, and they really do have a huge inventory. So get yourselves up there, and if you don't want to drive all the way to what is, I think, very close to the Canadian border, go ahead and visit them on their .com. If you are a regular listener to Metaphysical Martini, I love you and welcome back all my darling martini heads. If you're joining us for the very first time, a warm welcome to you. Warning, warning, this show is not politically correct because we do not wish to erode our intellect. We don't edit our content to fly under the radar of the thought police. No, we don't. We do not conform to the new norm of don't think, don't speak, just obey the puppet administration. We, my darlings, are Americans, and America has a sacred purpose, to be a beacon of spirit-centered common sense for the new golden age, a place where all manner of human life forms can come together to define life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Sovereign souls, one and all, Minds aligned with the mind of all that is. Hearts attuned to the vibration of all that is. Source, creator, I am. The divine, if you wish to call it that. Cosmic creation, if you prefer to call it that. You are free to choose your own expression to describe that which is indescribable. Because no human words are expansive enough to describe the eternal nature of cosmic creation. Whose fault is that? 
Well, let's start with big religion, shall we? <laughs> big religion, my darlings. We've had it for thousands of years. And our world is more effed up than ever, isn't it? Let's move on, shall we? Religion, it's a human construct. And humans have hijacked the divine message of unconditional love and turned it into a horror movie. Dark psychology with killer clowns wearing purple gowns, red hats and red shoes. Ooh, let's reclaim our souls from the gutless minions passing themselves off as leaders, spiritual or other. Honestly, sometimes I break down and I weep at the level of insanity I see around me. A mind aligned with a divine mind is able to discern truth from deception. So why do we have clergy <clears throat> instructing congregants to accept the mark of the beast, you know, in the form of the COVID inoculata and to inject it into their bodies? Tell me, darlings, is it because they're clueless or is it because they're gutless? Because one can't lead if one is either of those things. In certain regions of America, we have teachers telling children, very young children, not only is it right and proper to choose their gender, but they're also encouraging them to explore their private parts. You don't talk to children as young as five about that sort of thing. They are too impressionable, which is of course why they are targeting the young ones. Children should be playing with crayons, playing outside, dressing up in fairy regalia, not be focused on their genitalia. This is all part of the blurring of the lines agenda that is the Luciferian controlled New World Order. They themselves, especially in the upper echelons of that order, engage in unspeakable perversion. I'll speak about it, but most won't. It's part of their ritual, you see. They do terrible things in their rituals. And they want to normalize it, make acceptable all manner of misconduct. And they do this by telling children, pink is blue, apples are potatoes, and if you are of a certain color, all the woes of the world are your fault and you're a terrible person. And you mustn't tell your birthing units anything we discuss in school. And by the way, children, having a penis does not mean you are male. So feel free to put on a dress and pretend you are female. Oh, look, little Jimmy, how pretty you are. Oh, darlings, the world doesn't need masculine men. Masculine men might be tempted to do something foolish. Uh, for example, protect their families from harm. What a strange notion that would be. And who needs feminine women? What a silly notion. Oh no, you silly humans. Give us your children and the Dark Lord will thank you. You know, no matter how open-minded you think you are, and I am pretty open-minded, this is some serious bullshit we have to deal with. I cannot believe, well, maybe I can, but let's say I am deeply disappointed that it's 2022 in America, we are having conversations about the ability of men to get pregnant and have babies. How absolutely insane is that? What's next on the agenda, do you think? Will there be a campaign to tell children they can identify as animals? I mean, one day, is little Jimmy going to come home and go, oh, hello, um, birthing units. Um, my teacher, you know, the one who's five foot two and thinks that 400 pounds is an acceptable weight and healthy, has no gender but is part of a thruple, the one with the blue, green and pink hair and multiple body, body piercings and all of that, you know, that she likes to show off. Um, anyway, this person, she hit it, whatever, uh, told us we can identify now as non-humans because clearly it's far too complex to pick a gender and maybe it's not fashionable not to have a gender anymore. So um, birthing units, I want to be a cat. 
So if you don't mind, I think I'd like to poop in a box and eat kibble. And if you could just give me some tummy rubs, that would be just awesome. And I won't even get started on the bought and paid for minions that call themselves politicians, acting like rodents, scurrying from bribe to bribe, flip-flopping on issues, changing their stance more often than they change their underwear. You know, even the cabal, and the cabal are nasty shit, but even the cabal spit on politicians. They call them mercenaries selling to the highest bidder, and they do whatever their paymasters ask of them. Oh, if you haven't paid attention, I suggest you start paying attention now. You know, for years, people scoffed when we told them no child left behind was the start of a long road to ruin. It's happening as we speak, isn't it? The dumbing down. I mean, it's, it's mind-blowing. And people scoffed when we told them that World Health Organization and United Nations were instruments of a totalitarian takeover. Go and read everything that you can find about them. Read about them in their own words, we said to you, and see what you make of that. No one did. We told you all it was a plan to subjugate humans and turn them into automatons, and it's happening as I speak. Do you have an idea what's going on? with the sovereignty, handing over sovereignty, and you know they're going to have the ability to declare global-wide pandemics. They're taking away the sovereignty of your government. Do you know that this is happening, people? Hello? It's happening. It's happening as we speak. This planet, this beautiful planet, has turned into the planet of the dumb poops. And if they sell this monkeypox bullshit, it's going to be the planet of the dumb poop apes, isn't it? Does anyone have an original thought anymore? Or is the new normal parroting what one hears on the demon box of misinformation? On that almighty, our vision is now your vision, television. Turn off your televisions, darlings. Turn them off. Oh, darlings, let me have a little drinky poo. Hold on. Oh, I need one today. Oh, that is lovely. Mm. On today's show, <laughs> after I finish pontificating, we have quack questions, answers, and comments. We also have our little philosophy corner, Plato Chips. We also have Tarot A Go Go. And if we have time, a couple of weird and wacky tidbits from the anus of history. And of course, we finish up with a cocktail of the day which I'm enjoying as we speak, and it is yummy, yummy, yummy. But before all that, let me pontificate some more, <laughs> and let me pontificate on leadership. Something sorely lacking in today's gutless little world. Leadership. Don't look to Biden for it. <laughs> we had a leader once, his name was Trump. I have a feeling he might be coming back soon. What is leadership? What is leadership and how many different types of leadership are there? And to the derision of many, many who have no capacity for original thought, I've always considered myself some sort of a spiritual facilitator that would hopefully one day grow up and mature into a spiritual leader of sorts. And I felt that way, using the word spiritual before leader, even when I worked in the corporate business arena and you know I do work for them sometimes you know I mean write me a big enough check I'll work for you volumes have been written on leadership but as far as I can make out there is no one universally accepted understanding of what it is and unless a leader understands the role that leader will fail and most of them do I'm going to go with spiritual leadership. And in that particular type of leadership, one assumes the role of the leader is to first align themselves with the divine, cosmos, whatever, and having found that groove, help others to do the same. So that we're all coming from the same place, the right place, the place that says we do this for the betterment of mankind. 
Now, how we define religious versus spirit-driven or spiritual will have an effect on one's understanding of the role. If one is committed to a certain religion and believes their chosen religion is the only way to God or that the Bible is inerrant and all of that strange stuff, well, that's not a spiritual leader because that's the mindset of the proverbial company man will sell you his company vision any way he can. So if we look up explanations of leadership, we'll, we'll come across quite a few of them. We'll hear things along the lines of leadership is the process of persuasion or example by which an individual induces a group to pursue objectives held by a leader or shared by a leader and his or her followers. Okay. A fairly standard description. Or we might say um, leadership is influence, the ability of one person to influence others. That's certainly another part of leadership. Or we could say leadership is influencing God's people towards God's purposes. Yes, let's do that, shall we? Let's influence people towards God's purposes. Problem is that everyone has a different idea about God and God's purpose. So I lean more toward a Tony Robbins approach uh, to leadership. I mean, not that he's the one that came up with it. He certainly isn't. But he's very well known. Um, and he's very big, isn't he, Tony? So I'll use him as a point of reference because you can't miss him. What is my version of leadership? What am I doing? Do I have these sort of phony notions of altruism? I can assure you, my darlings, I don't. But I believe I want to help people find their authentic self because that's what I want for me. I want people to bring out the best in themselves because that's what I want for me. Leadership, to me, is the ability to inspire people to live in harmonious co-creation by first becoming their own leaders in their own lives so that no one can hijack their God-given common sense. When we look at secular leadership today, it's very deadline-driven, isn't it? It's very goal-driven. Over the years, I have taken on work for various corporate bodies, and no doubt I will continue to do so. Well, they have these programs for, um, quote unquote, employee development. They send folks off to a nice hotel somewhere for a few days and have them listen to motivational speakers. And they try to make them feel good about being tied to the nine to five corporate wheel of doom. Everyone gets pumped up at these, you know, these events. Um, and there's a big party at the end of the seminar and everyone gets far too drunk. But it's just, oh, yes, hurrah, our company is doing this for us. And we're so motivated and so exciting. And then everyone goes back to work, notes and workbooks in hand, all excited about the coming change. And guess what? Nothing changes. Nothing changes because that type of leadership is motive-driven. It's not spirit-driven. It's almost as though they're giving their staff a little bit of hope, a little paid vacation, an open bar, some very expensive motivational speakers. Um, and they say, well, that, that should last them a year. When they go back to work now, they'll just remember what a great time they had. Um, and then they'll come back to the same old drudge. Corporate leaders, I've met so many of them. Um, they're just little managers, really, aren't they? I mean, you know, they it's manager and leader, they're two separate things. But these corporate, these business leaders, they don't end up being inspirational. They end up being company policemen. They end up being critics. And because the motivation is solely profit-driven, not spirit-driven, they end up becoming bullies. I've lost count of the amount of bullies I've met in the management levels of corporate business. 
You know, if their subordinates don't perform to the required standard, the next tier up from them will admonish them. And then we have a cycle of fear-driven behavior. A term I hear often in business settings is, popularity is not leadership, results are. But are those results for the highest good of all? Or because we need to sell 10 million subpar widgets to the Kazakhstani army? There are far too many people out there calling themselves leader, but they have no calling for it. They have no character for it, and they have no competency for it. And if those three C's are not in place, how will the ill-prepared so-called leader deal with the fourth C, which is, of course, consequences? Take politicians as an example, the grease my palm and I'll pass any legislation you want brigade. They're prime examples. They'll promise you everything, take everyone's money, and then look at you in the eye and say, well, we tried, but we are still working for your highest good, you know. In my opinion, the reason secular leadership fails so often is because those in secular leadership roles are entirely focused on competition with other companies. In spiritual leadership, the only competition worthy of our time should be the desire to be a better version of ourselves each and every day. That's the goal. It's not the reality, though, is it? No. We've all heard the stories. We've all seen the X-rated movies. Um, well, the photos, at least. I haven't seen the X-rated movies, thank God. But we've witnessed the appalling acting as these preachers and pastors atone with crocodile tears before their congregants. Now, it's not the reality, but it is what we should aspire to. That's where a spirit-driven leader should start. Practice what you preach. Do your best. No one expects perfection. There's no such thing not in a physical realm, but have the courage for self-examination. Be honest with yourself as you converse with your God. Make a conscious effort to hide nothing from God. I mean, as if God doesn't know every detail of your life anyway, but it is important, very important, to consciously hold nothing back from God during your prayerful contemplations. Release the triggers, let them out, just like the Kraken. Release the triggers, release the traumas. Let the anger be released. Let all of your frustrations be expressed in this beautiful private time that you have in your prayerful contemplation with your divinity. Burn all your crap up in the holy light of God's love. Be honest. Be honest with your God. Be honest with yourself. Then you can make an honest effort to honorably lead. Knowing that the entire hierarchy of light flows through you because you simply asked for it. You asked for it and you allowed it. And the divine cosmos works through you to influence those who need guidance. I know that one person alone cannot change people. You alone cannot change people. But your union with all that is, it can and it will. When we're aligned with the divine, when that vibration within you is a habit, and you take it for granted, it's stabilized within you. Your presence alone is a healing presence. And by healing, I don't mean a cure for a disease. I mean a return to truth. All illness, mental and physical, is a misalignment with source. Now, that is a difficult concept for some to grasp. But once you understand your true nature, once you let the spirit inhabit the human, it makes perfect sense. So that's where your focus should be on cosmic alignment. Nothing will make sense when you're misaligned. When you're aligned, everything makes sense. 
I see no reason why these principles can't be incorporated into secular life and secular business. What is wrong with wanting the highest good for all? What is wrong with not seeing your interests as apart from others? What is wrong with working together to create a better world for everyone? Well, nothing, of course. That mindset should be our norm. But you see, my darlings, we have been trained to separate, to berate, to lie, to insult whatever we perceive to be competition. Corporate leaders don't ask themselves, am I acting with everyone's best interests in mind? They're more likely to ask themselves, I wonder how I can pull this off. I wonder how I can get away with this without ruffling too many feathers. They don't ask themselves, is my company's mission statement in line with mankind's highest good? They don't ask themselves, honestly, am I really accountable to the CEO or am I accountable to God? And why am I even asking this question if something deep inside of me didn't resonate with my company's mission statement? You see, if they did ask these questions, we wouldn't have pharma executives, would we? We wouldn't have pharma executives producing, promoting, and selling bioweapons. No matter how much money they make, and some of my clients, God bless them, make a potload of money, they are all at their core unhappy. Trust me, no one comes to see me because they're happy. The joy from buying new toys will eventually wear off. So I urge them to take time off, a personal retreat, and then just ask themselves the following question. Whose agenda am I following and why? And that is the only question I have them ponder throughout the entire seven-day retreat. The best thing leaders can do for their organizations, any type of organization, is to take their personal growth seriously, to be honest, to be accountable. With responsibility comes accountability. It's an interesting word, that responsibility. The ability to respond appropriately, correct response. Now there's a point to ponder. Well, I'm done pontificating now. <laughs> So let me have a little sip of my drinky-poo. Mm. Golly, that is a good one. Well, um, let me lead us directly into quack questions, answers, and comments. If you would like to share the contents of your fabulous minds on this intergalactically acclaimed podcast, send your emails to me, Arnie, at arnieavidician.com or snail mail to Cosmic Arnie. P.O. Box 714, Wilsonville, Oregon, 97070, USA. And don't forget to let me know if and how you wish to be identified, or I shall refer to you as Omit Personal Details, OPD. Alrighty, let's shake up the fishbowl of perpetual perplexity and see what pops out. Shaky, 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 shaky. Here's an email from Sandra in Lyme Regis, UK, who asks, oh, I remember this one. Okay. Dear Mad Annie, will you explain the difference between observation and judgment? My husband and I are studying A Course in Miracles. Every time I comment on something, he tells me I'm being judgmental. I'm about ready to kick him in the you-know-what. <laughs> Here's the thing, he's on a diet, or so he says, but I know he keeps a secret stash of Mars bars in the potting shed. He won't eat pudding at the table because he's on a diet, but I know he has a Mars bar after dinner when he tidies up his garden tools. So, without making waves, I gently called him on it. I said, Jerry, darling, you complain about not losing weight, and I know that frustrates you. I found a half-empty box of Mars bars in the potting shed. 
Would you like me to hide them from you in case they become a temptation? That's all I said, Arnie. And he got very, very angry. <laughs> okay, uh, Sandra, I will explain this to you. Uh, for the sake of your husband's dangly bits, I will explain this to you. Observation is not judgment. It is not a judgment to say, Jerry, you have mentioned how upset you are at not losing weight. That is a statement of fact. He mentioned it and you heard it. I noticed a half empty box of Mars bars in the potting shed. That too is a statement of fact. Those are not judgments. And then what did you say? You said, shall I hide them in case they pose a temptation? Well, I'm sure you phrased it and said it very sweetly. And you could say that is an honest question. Now, you didn't say, Jerry, oh my God, you fat piglet. How dare you pretend to skip pudding only to sneak off into the potting shed and scarf down Mars bars like there's no tomorrow. That would be judgment. <laughs> and I'll go out on a limb. Sandra, and I'll say deep down inside, those are the words you wanted to use, but didn't. And perhaps Jerry picked up on that, or he was simply upset at being caught, even though you didn't outright accuse him. Observing behavior and making an honest inquiry, that's not judgment. It is a process, but one of the things I like about the Course in Miracles, which you say you are both studying, it forces you to address the dysfunctional nature of the false ego, which is always frightened, always insecure, and will always lash out whenever it feels threatened. I mean, look at the world our egos have created. It's chaotic. It's insane. And this incident, the famous case of the missing Mars bars in Jerry's potting shed, <laughs> is a veritable Course in Miracles teaching moment. Your egos pinged each other. Ping, ping. <laughs> you should explore that ping and you should do it together. Here's a suggestion. This is my suggestion. Both of you take some time, put the kettle on, have a nice cup of tea together, take one of those Mars bars, cut it in half and share it and talk honestly about that interaction. It could pave the way for new adventures in your journey together. If you're studying Course in Miracles, the whole point of it is dislodging the false ego. That's what the course is all about. Moving away from petty human shenanigans into permanent alignment with all that is. In a place where nobody will argue about potting sheds, puddings and Mars bars. Thanks for the question. Good luck and drop me a line and see how your little Mars bar tea episode goes. All right, let's take another question from the fishbowl of perpetual perplexity. And this is from Omit Personal Details, who says, Ani, do you believe in all this Nasara Gasara business? My roommate thinks all his debts are going to be paid off and he will be given a universal stipend to sit home all day and play Halo. <laughs> Will our debts be written off? It sounds too good to be true. Are we going to receive money for nothing or, and your chicks for free? <laughs> I have read the articles he showed me, but I can't wrap my mind around it. Omit personal details. What a sensible little chap you are. I'm glad you can't wrap your mind around it because anyone who is okay with the government such as it is, giving them money to sit at home and play games has a mental health issue. That's not freedom, darling. Even if you are playing Halo, that's enslavement. Now, a financial reset will happen. I mean, it is happening. And, you know, fingers crossed, it's the good guys that are going to win. It's happening now. But this thing about all of our debts being declared null and void. Um, I'll believe it when I see it. But I won't because it won't happen. I don't think it's going to happen. It just sounds ridiculous. I mean, I can see how such a program would appeal to the indifferent, but to the engaged and the motivated. 
those who don't see incarnation as a spectator sport. Well, it's, it heralds the end of civilization as we know it. Perhaps we'll see an end to usury. That's a possibility. No more borrowing money that doesn't exist and paying high interest rates on it with more money that doesn't actually exist. That would be nice. There will be financial reform, much needed reform, but it's not for people to remove themselves from the world to sit on their asses, pick up a subsistence level stipend, say that fast, subsistence level stipend and engage 24-7 in a virtual meta universe. You might just gently, you know, instruct your friend, coach your friend lovingly, gently and remind him he's a manifestation of source energy. Um, and that would be a waste of an incarnation. Perhaps he might want to buckle up, sit straight and think straight and limit his computer gaming to an hour a day max. Uh, one more question, I think. Uh, let's see, this is from Elizabeth. And Elizabeth says, I have recently been diagnosed with stage one breast cancer. My oncologist will meet next week to discuss options for treatment. It seems manageable and much to my surprise, I am not overly concerned. It has not spread and it can be removed. My question is this, according to metaphysical principles, as I understand them, I gave this to myself. I can admit to being someone who internalizes. And I think I understand how that can lead to illness. But what I am asking is this, how do I deal with it going forward? Do I have the surgery or do I simply pray it away? Am I a spiritual failure if I have the surgery? Am I a spiritual failure for having manifested cancer? My darling Elizabeth, no, 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 and no. In no shape or form are you any type of failure for having cancer in your body. And in no shape or form are you a failure if you have the surgery. So please, darling, put that out of your head right away. While it's true that on a higher level, we are responsible for everything that happens to us, very few people understand what that actually means. So let's not sweat it for now. So if it's all stage one, early stage, that's fabulous. And if it's all in one place with no spread, even better. Now hear me on this and, and listen carefully. Certainly you can dissolve it through prayer, but that depends on whether or not you really believe you can do that. It depends on how stable your relationship with your higher self is. And that's something only you can answer. If the answer is no, not yet, I don't believe I can do it that way yet, then have the surgery and discuss options for post-surgery treatment, always getting a second, perhaps a third opinion and prayerfully contemplating all options with your higher self. Now, I've got something to add to this, Elizabeth. Here's the thing with localized tumors. You could think of it this way. All your past internalizations have come together in one spot in your body, so you can remove them all at once in one fell swoop. How lovely is that? And once it's all gone, then you can review how to process emotions and keep the energy anatomy clear and how to avoid such issues in your future. But for now, my sweet darling, just take care of business, get it done and move on with your life. And if you need any further guidance or you need to vent, just drop me a line. I'm always here. All right. I think that's it for Quack today. Thank you, everyone, for taking the time to share your thoughts with us, because, you know, otherwise we wouldn't have much of a show, would we? It would just be me pontificating, and I'm sure at a certain point that would get old. All right, what are we going to do now? I think maybe it's time for... Pharaoh, a go-go! 
learn how to play that instrument. Um, a little what the heck with your favorite tarot deck. And our card for today is the Ten of Wands. Yes, it is. Let me grab this card, which is at the other end of the room. Hold on. I'll be right back. Okay, Ten of Wands. Ah, uh, yes. Tens, what are they? The end of a cycle, really, aren't they? The summation, the completion. Hmm, we're on that brink of regeneration. When you've got to a ten, it's done. People say, you know, when you get to a nine, you've completed. Ten is the absolute end. And you begin to transform. Hmm. So let's take a look at this card, the ten of wands. Some people call them staves, sticks, rods. I like wands. So we have a chap. And he's got a bundle of ten wands, big sticks. And he's got his back into it because they look a little bit heavy. And he's forward a little bit and he's walking down a path. And at the end of that path or somewhere off in the distance there, there's a little house. We don't know if that's his house or if it just happens to be a house. But he's going down the path and he's picked up all these sticks. He doesn't look like he's groaning. Um, he's not overburdened. But he's definitely carrying, I don't know, the weight of ambition, something along those lines. Um, the weight of ambition, the burden of success. Um, either way, he's carrying a heavy load. And we could interpret this as responsibilities. And he looks quite determined. I mean, maybe he's taken on too much, but he doesn't seem to have dropped any of the sticks. He's going to stick it through. Should he delegate a little more? These are all potential meanings. You know, you want to develop a personal relationship with your cards, so the cards themselves will speak to you. I'm not really getting overload, not in the upright position. He seems to be in control. He seems to have taken full responsibility. He doesn't seem to be overly pressured. But it, this is a demanding project, and it does require, you know, concentration and hard work. Um, what else do I get from this card? Let me flow your information to me, card. Flow your information to me. Um, I get the impression this could also apply to somebody who's all work and no play. Self-employed people are like that. They don't take enough days off. They feel that, well, I did my work for the week, but I am self-employed, so maybe I should be doing something else. No, you shouldn't. Get down the pub with your mates like everybody else, you know? I get the impression this could apply to loners, people who don't delegate enough because they don't want to delegate. Hmm. Are you struggling to shoulder your load? Have you taken on too many responsibilities? But I keep looking at that little house in the background. And I think to myself, okay. The more I look at it, the more I feel he's on the final stretch now. I feel that he's taking all of these ones to that little house. Even though this is a heavy burden, he's got what it takes to stay the course. Now, this might have given him a much better appreciation of his limits. <laughs> and maybe next time he won't pick up such a heavy load or maybe he'll do it in two goes or he'll have a mate help him. Um, it could, I suppose, also have something to do. It could be a warning about overwork, musculoskeletal issues. You know, the other cards will guide you and make a complete story. And, of course, you know, your own intuition. But definitely somebody who is committed. Yeah. Now, let me turn this card upside down, put it in what they call the challenge position. And let me see what wisdom it imparts. But let me have a little drinky poo first. This is really a very nice cocktail, by the way. I mean, I'd love to make you all one, but, you know, you're not here. Oh, uh, if you visit me, I'll make you this cocktail. Mm. All right. Oh, you know what? This is good in the reverse position. That burden, it's been lifted. I feel very light. I'm relieved of my stress. I'm relieved of the pressure. I have put down my burden. Yes. 
That's what I feel. Now, as I say that, that's what I'm feeling. But in certain circumstances, it could mean that you've really messed things up. It could mean that you have been led astray. You will not be able to finish this project. But again, you'll have to do a full spread and see what story the other cards tell you. But as I flipped this upside down, I immediately felt relief. It was just lovely. So either way, if you get this card, you're stuck in the middle of something. And it's completely up to you how you're going to finish it. So you might as well, you got this heavy load. You might as well put your back into it. Manage your responsibilities. Review as often as possible. And just get on with it. And when you put it down, do a complete review so you don't get overburdened again. Um, be sure also that you're not contributing to the burdens of others. I sort of, I get that. I feel that, you know. Hmm. Ten of wands. Very nice. All right. Well, that was terrible. A go, go. What should we do now, my little darlings? I think I ran out of time last time, so I'm looking at the time. But have we done Plato chips for a while? I don't think we've done Plato chips for a while. So let's go ahead and do that. Plato chips, where we discuss and quote a philosopher of note. And today's perpetual free thinker is Voltaire. And Voltaire was born in 1694. So he's getting on a bit, and I'm, but he did pass away in 1778. And what do we know about Voltaire and do we care? I think we care. I liked him a lot when we studied him in school because he was so volatile. You know, he was Voltaire the volatile. He was always getting into trouble. He didn't really have any boundaries. Um, and here's the thing. I'm just going to change my, my glasses here because I did make a couple of notes. But um, the type print is so small. <laughs> I can't read them with my computer glasses. So hold on. Oh, so much better. All right. So we've got this chap, Walter. And when I told a, a friend of mine today that this is what I was going to do, he said he's not a philosopher. He's a writer. Well, I prefer to call him a controversial philosopher. Born November 21st, 1694 in Paris, France. I think he's one of the most important philosophers of the Enlightenment era. But I can understand why people say he's not a philosopher, Arnie. He's a writer because he did so many different things. Um, it's difficult to classify him as a philosopher because he wrote plays. He wrote novels, he wrote historical pieces, poetry, essays, um, and also scientific texts. So he was born into a middle-class family. Um, his mother came from a noble family. Should we say what, upper middle-class then? Um, his father was a treasury official and a notary. But young Voltaire, <clears throat> whose real name was Francois, um, he passed away at the age no, he didn't pass away. His mother passed away when Voltaire was seven. And that, um, well, that's never good. But it made Voltaire have a very close relationship with his godfather, Chateauneuf, who was a well-known freethinker. Um, he had a very big impact on his life. He taught the young Voltaire all about literature um, and about God and metaphysics, but in a very rational way. And he encouraged Voltaire to renounce superstitions. So 1704 to 1711, Voltaire attended um, the College Louis Le Grand in Paris, which if I remember correctly, uh, yes, it was, it was a Jesuit college. And he received a fabulous classical education and he was very adept at learning languages. You know, I mean, at a very young age, he already knew Greek and Latin. And later on, he became fluent in English, Spanish and Italian. 
And by the time he'd finished his formal education, he had made up his mind that he was going to be a writer. His father, however, had other plans for him. Um, nobody, no parent ever wants to hear their child go, Dad, I'm going to be a writer. Dad, I'm going to be a musician. Like, you want to be a doctor. You want to be a lawyer. That's what they want for you. Isn't that crazy? Well, Walter's father wanted his son to be a lawyer because he believed writers contributed nothing of value to society. And so for years, Voltaire lied to his father and said, oh, dad, yeah, I'm working as an assistant to a lawyer. But what he was really doing was composing satirical poetry. But he got busted. Oh, yes, daddy Voltaire found this out and he sent his son to law school. And even though Voltaire had to buckle down and do law school stuff, he continued to pursue his passion um, and he began to sort of circulate in intellectual circles. Um, he was a very volatile young man. Uh, throughout his lifetime, he had a history of standing up to authority and opposing it. And he was imprisoned several times and exiled uh, several times because he was always insulting some nobleman or some member of royalty or probably somebody in the church. Um, he just could not keep quiet. Uh, from 1726 to 1729, after yet again offending another nobleman, he was forced to live in exile in England. And most people would think, oh, well, okay, that was quite a punishment, you know, early 18th century England, but he loved it. While in England, he was introduced to the ideas of John Locke, uh, Isaac Newton, um, and he was introduced to Bacon. I mean, not the pig bacon, uh, you know, not to Francis Bacon, you see. Um, and Voltaire really had a thing for British constitutional monarchy. He thought that compared to the French royalty, the British, the English, embraced freedom of religion and freedom of speech. And so when he eventually returned to Paris, or was that three years ago, I think? Uh, yeah, it was about three years or so. Um, anyway, he wrote of his experiences in England, his views of Britain, and he published uh, Philosophical Letters of, of the English in 1733. Um, and he was praising England. And this pissed off the French government, and it really pissed off the church. Um, and Voltaire had to go into hiding in Paris yet again. Um, and he couldn't stay there because they found him. So he had to go and exile himself in the northeastern part of France for the next 15 years. But it was not so bad because he spent it with his lover, his collaborator, Emily du Chatelet. And that's when he wrote his works in science, history, fiction, philosophy, um, metaphysics, uh, you know, trying to rationalize the existence of God. Um, this man, Voltaire, he called for religious freedom. He called for the separation of church and state. Um, he renounced religion entirely, not God, but he renounced religion entirely. When his lover, Mademoiselle Châtelet, died in 1749, Voltaire moved to Potsdam to work under Frederick the Great, and that would have been Prussia, wouldn't it? And by 1753, he'd already pissed somebody off there at the Berlin Academy of Sciences. And then he had to spend a great deal of time traveling from city to city, and he was banned just about everywhere he went. And so he ended up very close to the Swiss border uh, where he wrote Candide, which if you only read one book by Voltaire, you should read the satirical Candide. It's quite awesome and a very interesting ending. Um, he did manage to get back to Paris, by the way, when he was 83. Um, about, I think, the same year that he got there, 1778, he died. But he did manage to get back home. So why am I choosing him as a philosopher? What is the philosophy of Voltaire? Um, he was a firm believer in religious liberty. He was not an atheist, as people thought. He was a deist. He was just opposed to organized religion and Catholicism in particular. Um, he saw the Bible as a metaf you know, metaphorical moral reference. And he thought of it, as do I, as outdated and something created by man. Um, he believed that the existence of God is not a matter of faith and, and therefore cannot be based on a particular faith, but it is a matter of reason. He was the one who said, if God did not exist, 
it would be necessary to invent him. As far as his politics went, he viewed the French monarchy and its unfair balance of power in very negative light. He thought of the bourgeois as too little and ineffective, the aristocracy as corrupt and parasitic, and commoners as superstitious and ignorant, and the only usefulness of the church was to use its religious tax to create a base strong enough to go against the monarchy. Um, he was in favor of the constitutional monarchy that he witnessed in England. He thought that would be an ideal form of government. Uh, well, 300 years later, he would not have thought that. I suppose we could say that his views on liberty, um, his philosophy were based on a hedonistic morality. Could we say that? Many have said it. I could go with that. Um, if you read his poetry, he's very into moral freedom. Sexual liberty is not something that, uh, you know, that passed him by. Um, what was a phrase somebody told me once I liked? Voltaire's writing presented morality as being rooted in the positive assessment of personal pleasure. His ideas regarding ethics were based on maximizing pleasure while reducing pain. Hmm. He hated Descartes. I do remember that about him. In fact, he detested, he detested Descartes. Um, Voltaire's stance um, of philosophy was skepticism. He called Descartes a philosophical romancer. Um, he saw no value in creating systematic accounts in order to explain things in some type of coherent way. That's interesting. Um, that type of philosophy, Voltaire said, was not philosophy, but fiction. And Voltaire claimed that the role of the philosopher is to understand that sometimes no explanation is the most philosophical explanation and that philosophers should liberate people from their dogmatic principles and irrational laws. You know, I think I'm going to revisit Voltaire, remind myself why I liked him so much. So there's your little, uh, your little shifty on Voltaire, just to give you a little amuse-bush, a little taste of all of that, and uh, you know, to get you interested in going back and looking at some of the classical people because you think of the classicals as really boring, but they're not. People like Voltaire were really bad boys. And come on, let's be honest. Who doesn't like a bad boy? Do we have time for weird and wacky tidbits from the anus of history? I really don't think we do. Can I get a quick one in? All right. Keeping with the French theme, did you know it's illegal for couples to kiss on the platforms at French train stations? Isn't that funny? That strange law was announced in 1910 when the rail chiefs complained about the unnecessary delaying of trains due to the amorous kissing of French couples. Under this law, couples are not allowed to kiss while the train is on the platform. Instead, they can do it, kissing, before the arrival of the train on the platform. Well, there you are. Perhaps it is correct that the French have this reputation for, for romance. They're kissing, kissing everywhere all the time. Oh my God, my darlings, it's almost time. We've almost come to the end of the show. I hope you enjoyed listening in as much as I recorded it because I have a blast. It's my pleasure to connect with you every other week. You're like-minded people, you're my tribe and I love you. Today's real life cocktail is called a Vanderbilt and here's how you make it. One and a half or two ounces of good brandy, half an ounce or a splash more of cherry brandy, a dash of Angostura bitters, one teaspoon superfine sugar, a lemon peel twist, and a cocktail cherry. Use a good one. Don't use that crap cheap stuff. Fill a shaker with ice. Add the brandy, cherry brandy, bitters, and sugar. Shake the almighty heck out of it. Strain it into a martini glass. Dress it with a lemon twist and the cherry and enjoy it because it's warm and it's soothing and it's ever so yummy. Now remember, folks, cocktails are great if they are an occasional treat. If you use top quality ingredients and take the art of mixology seriously, one big drink is all you need. I'm Arnie Avedisian. 
This was a metaphysical martini, a production of Cosmic Reality Radio, to whom we are most grateful. Until we meet again, get involved in all levels of government, kick the new world order in the nuts, and above all, my darlings, let the spirit inhabit the human. You have been listening to The Metaphysical Martini with Ani Alpadesian, The Mad Shaman, a production of CosmicReality.com. 